Happy Monday. Happy Monday. How's it going? Good, good. So um, it's Labor Day, which it means uh, we probably should be doing other stuff, but uh, we're, we're streaming this morning because uh, we're just that dedicated. Plus, a lot of our audience doesn't actually live in the United States, so we figure uh, we'll uh, keep doing the uh, Monday morning data chat. So. Plus, I guess they're not working, so they have time to listen to us. They've got nothing better to do. <laughs> this, is, this is also true. So, yeah, so thanks to anyone uh, tuning in this morning. Um, and this morning, we're going to talk about... Uh, Something that we've we've been noticing, I would say anecdotally, um, you know, a lot of people are asking us about how to hire data engineers if we know yeah. of anyone who's looking for work, um, as well as how to, um, you know, keep the the data engineers they have uh, around. So, uh, what, what do you what do you see out there, Matt? Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, I think that matches my experience. We get asked about data engineers all the time, but also we we, we look you were looking at this dice report this morning and. Some of the data here agrees with what we've seen, and some of it maybe doesn't quite so much. Right. Yeah. I mean, let's first talk about you know we'll hop into the Dice uh, um, you know Q2 tech job report in a second. But I mean, what are um, what are some of the anecdotes we're seeing out there? I mean, I, I know I have friends from uh, you know obviously lots of uh, small to mid-sized companies asking us if we know of any data engineers looking for work. Uh, but then we're talking also about, you know, people at fame companies uh, reaching out to us as well, asking us if we know yep. data engineers. And I find that's a bit surprising, right? Because I, I would think that these uh, companies have uh, armies of recruiters and access to the best talent, but they're coming to, uh, you know, people like us. <laughs> to... Yeah, it's a curious situation. So, so the story I've heard about a lot of these fan companies, this is kind of anecdotal. I, I don't know if there's actually data to support this, but, but supposedly Google's philosophy was always you suck up as much like right out of college talent as you can, and then you develop people from there. So you just like hire armies of people and then you start differentiating them. Some will be software developers, some will be data engineers working back on, in the day on GFS and other technologies. So it is really curious, right, if that's true, if Google, Facebook, Amazon have been doing this for a long time, that they would see any kind of shortage, right? You would assume that they would have so much in-house talent that they would never really run out. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore, um, especially, I suppose, with people churning out of those companies over time because of stress or because of, you know, COVID and work policies and other things going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm hearing this from other people too. You know, uh, I would say, um, you know, people around the country, but friends asking, okay, so is it just me or does it seem like hiring data engineers is really challenging right now? And I have to yeah. say, well, I, I don't think it's you. I, I think it's just the, it really is happening right now. But yeah, you know, and then it's, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, but let's talk about this DICE report real quick. So yeah. let me just open this up. Yep. Great. So yeah, DICE uh, uh, Q2 2021 uh, tech job report. Um, I mean, in general, I think their methodology is pretty sound. I mean, they, they have access to, um, you know, I think they say over a billion job postings and they do a sample of you know well over a million. So I think this is um, a strong uh, representation. It's yeah. sure beats, uh, you, know, um, you know, kind of our anecdotes here. But yeah, I mean, job postings have grown a lot. I, it indicates that there's, a desire to hire. Um, and I mean, interestingly, the, the growth um, in geographies, for example, it really speaks to the nature of, of the change in remote, yes. right? Vegas, Sacramento, Alabama, Tennessee are seeing the biggest growth. Yeah. Um, this is interesting. Salt Lake. Um, I mean, I see this here too. Uh, yeah, we've seen a lot of people move in from all over the country. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, Vegas is surprising. I mean, because that city was like basically written off for dead uh, last year, right? right? So, <laughs> so apparently they're doing something right now. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you know, this is this is interesting. So these are geographies, um, and it, you know, I, I don't think a day goes by I don't meet somebody who's moved to Salt Lake, for example, which is where we live. You know, who's moved here from um, most likely the Bay Area or California or someplace. Um, you know, and then. A lot of people work in tech, so, but, you know, well, there's been a mass migration all over the place. Frankly, yeah, yeah, there has, so. and it's a very dynamic situation, too. I mean, I think we both know several people who kind of showed up here for a while, just like, oh, well, I can go anywhere, so let's go to Salt Lake and visit some friends. And then the next thing I would hear, like, oh, yeah, we just bought a house in Salt Lake. 
right? <laughs> the reason housing prices here are absolutely insane. It's insane. I was just looking at the Zillow uh, estimate for uh, you know one of my places here, and I I was pretty floored. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's flattering, but uh, yeah, it's totally crazy. Um, and yeah, it, but this is happening everywhere right now. You know, it just I think people are. Um, people can live wherever they want. They can work wherever they want. And, and you know, and I think with, with COVID as well, even though there was some talk about everybody going back to the office, uh, it seems like a lot of those plans have been derailed, um, you know, at least for a short while, if not, a not longer. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting. Um, I think it's a tough time for businesses, including ours in the sense that there's so much uncertainty in the market. It's a little bit hard to plan for the future. I mean, we're a 100% remote company, so it's a less of a problem for us, but but still, like we we like working on site with clients when we can, and it doesn't look like that's going to happen much anytime in the future. There are questions about whether COVID is going to maybe become a seasonal disease, and we just have to deal with it for the next decade or so. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> yep. Yeah. But I think remote's here to stay. I mean, remote's regardless here. of whatever, a lot of these, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, the remote's going to be dead. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I highly doubt it. Um, I mean, it's, you know, so so that's one factor, right? Yeah. So like, hiring people has changed a lot. I also think there's a great reshuffling where um, people, given the chance to, you know, kind of work remote or be furloughed, frankly, I mean, they found a kind of maybe a new path in life that they, you know, they weren't willing to go back. You can look at restaurants as an example of this, where if you've ever worked in a retail or food service, like I have, and, um, I do not miss those days at all. I it's could brutal. never see going back. Yep. It's tough work. Yeah. And dealing with just how like triggered everybody is these days. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine being a food service worker or a retailer or flight attendant. Like, I would, yeah. No. <laughs> so. Okay. Let me ask you this. So the, I just thought of this now and I, I'll bring up another point in a second. Um, do you think the move to remote work is also going to drive a shift toward more cloud services? So in other words, if I'm, say an online retailer and I have a data center, am I going to be looking at that saying, maybe I don't want to have a data center because then I have to have employees on site, creates all kinds of headaches. If it's all cloud, then it can all be remote. I don't have to have anyone managing hardware machines, the physical facilities, those kinds of things. I mean, are you looking for my opinion or are you looking for the I'm facts? I'm looking for your opinion. I don't, yeah, I mean, I mean the, we can look for data later. The facts bear this out. The facts bear this out. I mean, I, I, can, yeah. I can point you to any number of articles that, you know, I've shown the explosion of cloud growth. So I don't think you need my opinion to, to tell you that, like, you know, um, during 2020 and 2021, like a lot of our cloud partners are busier than ever. Um, yeah. You know, what basically COVID did is it pulled in like five, 10 years of, of progress, uh, you know, and, and brought it forward. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not really an opinion at this point if, if cloud's, you know, going to see traction. It already did. Yeah. So, um, you know, and so... But let's look at some occupations real quick. So I think it would, our our whole thought, like, you know, I, we get hit up a lot for data engineering uh, hires and, and so forth. But I think if you look at Dice's report, at least, and, and um, the numbers that they show, I think it's a bit different, right? So yeah. if we look at the, um, you know, and let me just blow this up a bit so the readers can, viewers can see it. So, you know, but let's take a look at this, okay? So if we had... Um, uh, I think this is ranked by total number of job postings here, and then it's percent change, right? So um, software developer, no surprise, it's a uh, popular uh, occupation. Um, but then, you know, data engineers like 29, so not even right. like middle of the pack. And the growth is 15% in job postings. So that's not even like that impressive if you compare it to the ranking of, um, you know, percent growth and um you know, occupational type here. SAP Architect is number one for whatever reason, right? Uh, um, UI, UX design, and so forth. Uh, data engineer doesn't show up here. So I think, uh, but then again, you have uh, BI developer that does show up. Um, cloud architect, software architect does show up. Database administrator, which that yep. can cross over with data engineer. It really depends on the details of the job. It does, right? Yeah. So part of this, I think we're kind of wondering, is this sort of an overlap? Um, what I, I what I think it actually is, you know, is, is more selection bias. Like you and I are probably getting uh, hit up for data engineering jobs precisely because it's the field we're in. Yeah. So, yeah. but that said, it's still growing a ton. It's not like you're, um, you know, a, a cybersecurity analyst, which is three percent, which I think is kind of surprising as well. Yeah, um, and the other thing I found interesting is that the 
it, things to jobs specifically to do with cloud don't show up too much in this report. Like if you go to fastest growing tech occupations by job posting volume, um, the last one on there is cloud architect. And maybe that just has to do with the hierarchy of how they sort jobs. So in other words, mm. senior data analysts, are they breaking that out by like cloud specific skills like Snowflake, BigQuery, Redshift, those kinds of things? Or is it just all classified together? It's hard to say. I, I don't know. But I found that interesting that like you don't see cloud specific jobs too much in this report. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting observation. I, I'm kind of curious if it's baked in or, or yeah. what. So um or is it just the fact that um if they're focusing on on the like largest um specific professions we, we've both talked about how the cloud is growing rapidly but it's still small in the enterprise space like we expect it to mm -hmm. blow up in the next decade and so maybe in absolute terms like we work in a cloud world not everyone does there's still a lot of on-prem out there and so maybe in absolute terms cloud is just still small for many of these enterprises and that's why we're not seeing as much i don't know I don't know because I think yeah, I mean it's just going off of like the postings, you know, yeah. with, the, with the title and, and stuff, exactly. right? So yeah. it's just, it's hard to say because if you were to make a job posting for data engineer, you know, in, in this day and age, I mean, would you? I think the, the it's implicit that the cloud would be a part of that, right? I, I don't know. I mean, depending where you work, but yeah. uh, I don't think that you'd be saying, "Well, come work in our like awesome uh, on-prem environment that we made from scratch," right? Like that would be a way to uh, probably attract like. Very few candidates, right? Um, well, let's talk about that for a bit, though. What what would be some ways that would make um, your company attractive to a data engineer? Yeah, that's a very good question because, of course, it's, it's Labor Day, and part of what we wanted to talk about is things like work life balance and making people's lives better. And you know, the the tech industry can be pretty brutal in some ways, especially jobs that are related to ops, to keeping systems up and running. And data engineering does tend to cross over into an operational role where you've got to like maintain systems, make sure they stay online, have on-call times and cycles and such. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, you, you brought up the saying, people don't leave their jobs, they leave their managers, which I, I think can be very true. Say a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an old saying, right? People yeah. don't leave their jobs, they leave their managers. Um, but they also seek out great managers, right? So if you're trying to hire, I would say, you know, the it's then this day and age, um, because you aren't working in an office, right? It makes it a bit trickier because how are you going to get to know this person? So I would say if you're a hiring manager, um, you know, maybe have a bit more of a public facing uh, presence, you know, on, on social media, for example, talk about the cool things your company is doing. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it, I think you can also say like, you know, people don't, uh, join a job, they they join a team, they join, um, you know, a manager, and that's almost the equivalent statement in some ways. And they will also leave you if, if you end up you know, violating whatever pact of trust you had. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, uh, let me see here. Oh, sorry, I'm going <laughs> to guess what the number one predictor is in most attrition models. Um, yeah, it's manager and it's team. I, I've seen these before. So, yeah, uh, but I would also say too, you know, given the number of options available, I mean, it, it's a job seekers market at this point. Mm -hmm. um, the, the quicker I think as a hiring manager, you realize this, uh, the, uh, I think, I'm not gonna say you're, you'll be successful just because I think there is an actual shortage of talent out there. I wanna yeah. dig into the numbers more before I equivocally say that. But, uh, you know, every, everywhere I go, where are you gonna find data engineers, right? So, so um, hiring's tough. Right. And the fang companies, if they're having trouble finding people that may or may not mean much for you, but I would say that they have a lot of resources. Um, and even in this dice report too, I mean, yeah. this isn't data engineering specific, but let's look at you know, the top employers here, for example, um, by job posting volume. Um, and again, this could, this could either indicate like they have a lot of jobs. It doesn't tell you like what's been filled, but let me just show you this real quick. Yeah. Well, because they have to generally, you as a matter of policy and the law, you have to post jobs if you're going yep. to do internal promotions, right? Which so this can just mean a lot of people shuffling internally at a place like Google. Who knows? Yeah. So Amazon's number one, Uber, Infosys, um, and we've heard through the grapevine even like big consulting firms right now, like they, they can't take on any, on certain projects with, with some people that we know. They can't um, take on any more projects internally at these companies because they just don't have the people. Um, so that's, there's that. But again, this doesn't really, this doesn't like break it out by data or whatever occupation. So it's just in general um, tech jobs. But well, as you can see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's something where I almost have other questions about this. So for the, the fact that the cloud jobs and non-cloud jobs aren't broken out separately, 
I think in data engineering, there's also some reduction happening. And by that, I mean, there likely are going to be fewer Teradata on-prem jobs in the future, for example. Like Teradata is going all in on cloud. And we're seeing, you know, eventually some of these on-prem systems are going to disappear. There are going to be fewer Hadoop on-prem jobs. In fact, there are going to be fewer Hadoop jobs in general. And so the sector of data engineering, I think where we operate, is seeing a lot of growth. Other sectors of data engineering that would fall under that umbrella maybe are shrinking. And so without breaking that data out separately, it's hard to get some of those details maybe. It's just my guess. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I'd yeah. like to get more stats on this kind of yeah. stuff too, just in terms of uh, um, specifics of job postings. Right. Um, if anybody has anything like that, please let us know Like where they're seeing the... Uh, um, big trends. Um, but it's one thing to post though. I think it's another thing to understand who's like, what's what jobs are getting filled as a result mm -hmm. of postings mm -hmm. and that's not being shown. Right? right. So, right. Yeah. So what, yeah. What jobs aren't getting filled? Like they create these postings and they can't find people like that. Mm -hmm. That would be very interesting data to have. Right. So. Cause it's the other side of the coin, right? Like yeah. I could, we can make a million job postings. Um, my cost is a lot of money, but we could do it. Um, and, uh, that's no guarantee obviously that, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll have any jobs to fill or so anyway, it, it's an interesting one, but yeah, hiring right now is tough across the board. I would say um, you talk to any technology leader data or not, and they, they have, a, and it keeps them up at night. Like, how am I going to build my team right now? Um, and so maybe we can talk about some ways that you can um, augment your team without uh, having to hire um, externally. Yeah. And so, yeah. How can you do more with a small team, for example? Um, <laughs> One of the things I brought up in the or notes is that like in data engineering, there's this long tradition of undifferentiated heavy lifting. And of course this kind of made sense in a different era. I don't think it makes as much sense now. Like how mm -hmm. would you describe undifferentiated heavy lifting? What are we talking about here? Um, I mean, basically a, a classic one we always bring up is writing connectors for stuff that's already been solved. Like, so making a MySQL to um, Snowflake connector from scratch, like that's, you're wasting your time. There's like a million things out there that already do that. Yeah. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Obviously, you see a lot of undifferentiated heavy lifting. And transformations is another one. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, anyway, I, I think everyone wants to work on what they consider to be special snowflake uh, systems. Uh, but really, for the most part, I would say it's um, it's already been solved and you can find stuff off the shelf. So, yeah. Well, and I, I think one thing we're both aware of is that if you choose to run your own Hadoop cluster, so by that I mean... Typically your own hardware, typically, you know, install the software and everything that takes a lot of man hours. Like it takes a lot of work to, first of all, set it up, but second, just to maintain it, update it, fix problems with updates. And alternatively, if, if you want Hadoop, you can just use something like Elastic MapReduce on AWS and that's turnkey. Like you basically mm -hmm. make a few selections, click a button and it spins up and then you destroy it when you're done. And like the, the number of man hours of work involved is far, far less if you do that. But how many, it's interesting though, how many uh, uh, data engineering um, job postings do you still see that uh, require Hadoop as a skill? Yeah, or, that's you know, It's crazy. Question. So I, I see yeah. this a lot, but then yeah. when I dig underneath the hood, I find out they're not even using Hadoop and they just list it as like a skill because they found somewhere like, oh, well, a data engineer needs to have these skills. Therefore, our job posting needs to attract data engineers. Therefore, we have to list, even though Hadoop is, is totally unnecessary. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think Hadoop's a new COBOL. Um, so if you're using it, good for you. Um, I, I do think that in most companies, it's it's going the way of the dinosaur, and exactly that's how yeah. it is. So, yeah. and if you're still using it, like at least consider your options because you may be able to take that same team and reallocate them from maintaining your cluster to doing more interesting things in the cloud potentially. And that's the mm -hmm. undifferentiated heavy lifting part. Yeah. Big time, yeah. And so, it's, I, th I think maybe you know another way to build internally is um, maybe you know, um, reshuffle the skills. Uh, and actually, uh, actually Mary uh, has a good comment here. My company has no dedicated data engineers. Uh, the software devs do and data architectures do a mixture of some of these activities. Um, what I find interesting is that you have a data architect, but no data engineers. Um, but apart from that observation, yeah, and this, this kind of leads to a point, right, where um, software developers, I think, make, could make good data engineers. Your data scientists um, are probably doing some data engineering by default. Uh, at least it's been Matt and I's experience uh, personally. So yeah. uh, what are your thoughts on building from an, uh, from within? I think, I think it's very, very important now. 
Um, in fact, I think we've tried to do the same thing, like hiring people as interns and then helping them develop talent along the way, because it, it has been very hard for us to find, you know, consultants who <laughs> frankly aren't outrageously expensive in the data engineering space. Um, I, I think specifically going into data engineering, transitioning from software development, people have to develop data intuition. <clears throat> so in other words, you have to transition from the notion of like single events, which is typically what you're dealing with in a software domain, to handling huge amounts of data. But it's something that like talented people can do with the right mentorship. And so I think it really pays off to have that internal mentorship so that when you identify people who want to go into data, they have the opportunity to develop those skills without leaving your company. Because if they have to leave, you'll probably not get them back. Yep, else. this is true. Because yeah. again, people don't leave their jobs. They, they tend to leave their team and their managers, right? So, yeah. and I would say also, you know, if, if there's, I think there's increasingly a good argument for just automating a lot of the undifferentiated heavy That's lifting, right. which, which would yeah. allow you to um, maybe think harder about the type of data engineer you want to hire and what they'd be doing. Right. I think right. what we see is a lot of people think, oh, we need to hire a data engineer so they can build uh, pipelines into our data warehouse. And I'm like, that's very much a solved problem, uh, you know, unless you have a very specific API you're looking at. Right, exactly. And, and the, yeah, there's the sunk cost fallacy that we see over and over again. So people will look at something like Fivetran or Airbyte and say, oh, well, that costs money. I, I don't want to spend money. It's like, yeah, but how much is the time of your engineers costing you? And it's like, well, no, but I've, I'm already paying them. So it doesn't matter. It's like, well, yes, but... What are they not getting done because they're sitting there writing, you know, custom Python code to do something that's just turnkey and takes five minutes and five grand? Like yeah. that's what you have to take into account. Yeah. yeah. And and that that fits right in with this because if you like there's much less of a need for custom Hadoop skills now than there was in the past because it, a lot of it is turnkey in the cloud. And I think that's another broader trend we've been seeing for the last decade or so, which is that software devs have been kind of crossing over with operational roles and, and architectural roles in the cloud. That if you're a talented software dev, you're on a small team, you can develop some skills to actually be able to build out some infrastructure in the cloud to actually run systems. You have to be careful yeah. with that. The number one danger is that someone screws up security or privacy, right? Like you have to make sure that people are adequately trained to not mess something up in a very serious way. But otherwise, there can be a lot of crossover. I think so. And I, I had this conversation with somebody um, a couple of weeks ago where you know their company wanted to hire a data engineer, again, just to, to basically pipe data into Snowflake. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you realize you could just get Fivetran and do that. And because I asked them, OK, so what, what's going to happen after the data engineer does this, right? After they build the pipelines into the data warehouse, like what other work are they going to be doing? Um, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. So I thought, well, okay, so now you're going to have a board engineer. And a board engineer is a dangerous engineer. Because what do engineers like to do? Exactly. They're like, they oh, like to engineer. True. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, I, I would limit the blast radius. I would have actual work for them to do and not just hire a data engineer just for the sake of it. I mean, the cost you're going to spend on, you know, Fivetran, Snowflake, for example, and solving that workload is uh, much, much less than the, um, you know, six-figure salary you're going to be paying a data engineer who's probably just going to get bored and leave your company, actually, yeah. at some point because you haven't uh, thought through enough work. I mean, that's what I'm talking about with undifferentiated heavy lifting these yeah. days. Yeah. Piping data into a, a data warehouse is not a big deal. You don't, I, I, I'm going to go out and limit, I, I think you don't need a data engineer for that anymore. I mean, I will see the, say that we frequently run into connectors or, or APIs where there are no connectors, which you brought up yep. earlier. And that's, you know, you really need to go through your list of connections and say, okay, where are we actually going to have to do some custom work here? And does it make sense to uh, hire someone to do that or to just subcontract if it's only a small slice of the work that needs to be done? Mm -hmm. so, yep. Yeah. Um, Ask DevOps has a good question here. Is software engineering must become a data engineer? I see my company focus focuses 70% on software engineering skills and just 30% on data engineering, which uh, sounds weird to me, your opinion. Uh, what are your thoughts, Matt? I mean, it depends on the details of the role, I think, um, and the complexity, right? I think one place where software, well, there are a couple of places where software engineering still shows up. Um, if you are using a lot of kind of bleeding edge open source software, then you might have the need to customize that software, put in pull requests if you're using the latest frameworks. Um, if you're doing complex orchestration with something like Airflow or Dagster, for instance, th those are pipelines as code platforms. And to use them well, I've seen them used badly, but to use them well, you do need good software engineering skills. 
Um, where else? I mean, those are the some of the main drivers until you maybe cross over to ML engineering. The thing I would question maybe is the 70% number because I, I would be more interested first in data intuition. In other words, understanding fundamentally how data works and then maybe a little bit less interested in the software development part. And again, unless, so what are their, you know, basic logical skills for processing data? Do they have really strong SQL skills? And then if they need custom frameworks, can they code in Spark, for example? What, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think it's just, it depends on your company, really. Yeah. If, it, if it's 70% of software engineering skills, I, I think that's highly dependent upon your company circumstances and yeah. needs. Because there's not a one size fits all, but I would say in general, like software engineering is an undercurrent of data engineering. Yeah. Um, I think data engineer without software engineering skills really can't call themselves an engineer per se. Yeah. Um, maybe with increased abstraction, I, I could sort of make an argument about that, that you might be able to call yourself a data engineer still, but um, it's sort of tomato, tomato. But I would say it, it doesn't hurt you to have uh, good software engineering skills. I think it actually hinders you significantly if you don't. Because um, what, what are you going to do when you need to code something? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think we need to dig into the details of what the 70% number means. I mean, I would say you pro it's probably not a good idea to look for someone with 10 years of Java experience or something. In other words, you're filtering out a lot of really good candidates at that point. But you do want people who have basic software in intuition, who understand version control, who understand testing, like these basic software principles so they can apply them in their work as a data engineer. Yeah. Got another question here. Um, I get the posting of jobs, but the biggest challenge that I have been experiencing from an African uh, point of view is a lack of understanding of the day-to-day -day of what maybe a data engineer is supposed to be doing within the company. How can you advise a company that is looking for a data-related individual? How do they know um, that they should be looking for a data scientist instead of a data analyst um, or a statistician? Yeah, this is an interesting question. Um... Hmm. Yeah, um, I don't know if I have a real clear answer to this one off the top of my head. I do think that we saw in the era of data science, it's still the era of data science, right? But in like the data science explosion a few years back, data science was so hot that companies didn't realize that a lot of their fundamental value was going to come from more basic propositions, like just automation and reporting and processing and such. Yeah, so, the analytics. Yeah. I think it kind of depends on... Uh, I would almost invert the question and ask, okay, so like, what does your company need? Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that's where I would start. And then focus on um, what those skills are. And I think yeah. only after you have done that, can you really say, okay, so that looks like it's a data engineering type of a job. Um, but then I guess it's sort of the question of a lack of understanding of the day-to-day -day of what a data engineer is supposed to be doing. Um, I don't think there is like a one size fits all answer to right. what the day to day of a data engineer, nor would it be for a data scientist or an analyst. It's, it's, again, it's sort of what the last question asked about software engineering. And I think it just, it highly depends on the type of company you're at and what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Well, let me paint a typical scenario. So actually you're, you're a big advocate for Excel still being a valuable tool, even in 2021, which I tend to agree with. However, there comes a time when companies start to outgrow Excel. And that's kind of the, where they start to need data engineering. So in other words, they, they're doing a lot of reporting manually. You've got someone who's downloading data, loading it into Excel, trying to do some basic processing on it, and then they hand a report to their boss. And they do this day after day after day. Um, data engineering starts where it's like, okay, let's automate all of those processes. And instead of using Excel, let's use an actual database like Snowflake or BigQuery, something that's off the shelf where I don't have to hire a huge team and sign a multi-million dollar contract to get in the door. And then data engineer can help you to build those data flows. A lot of that reporting that you were doing manually can start to be automated at the, at the level of kind of analytics engineering. And then down the road, if you want to do more complex automated statistics, machine learning, data science, then that data engineer can start looking into sophisticated yeah. transformations, cleaning, observability of data from there. Mm -hmm. I, tend, yeah. I tend to agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I would go back and look at um, uh, Monica Rigotti's article, uh, The Data Science Hierarchy of Needs. Yes. I still think that uh, her, um, she has a pyramid basically that has like AI at the top and everything else at the bottom, basically data engineering and analytics. 
I would say start there, um, you know, and, and work from that, that rubric. I, I still think it, uh, you know, four years later ish, it still holds weight. Um, I guess we got another question here. Uh, just joins. So this may have been covered. Um, there isn't a talent shortage, just a shortage of skills specific to data engineering thoughts. Yeah. I would tend to agree with this one. That goes back to the idea of the fact that you can have start with software developers and develop them into data engineers. And it also crosses over with some of these fundamentals issues of maybe data engineers who've not stayed up to date on their skills who could, but they don't have the, the current skills like they're, they're all in on an older database system and, and don't know how to operate in the cloud at all. And so yeah. if you're a company, you have the option of, of layoffs or you can say, look, can we, these are talented people. Can we train them into a new set of skills so that they can contribute in a new way? Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's almost a, it's almost an interesting tautology though, right? Cause right. like um, you would have a shortage of, uh, um, I mean, ta talent, talent sort of assumes you have skills, right? So, yeah. I mean, to some degree, obviously you could be talented at picking up new stuff, but but then in order to be useful, you'd still have to have skills. Right. Like right. because you're talented at uh, baseball doesn't mean I'd hire you as a data engineer. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. And so I think what the argument really is, it's about retooling and reskilling right. people, as you right. sort of indicated. Um, I mean, there's probably a lot of talented people out there who, um, you know, just probably need to pick up uh, data engineering skills. So I think it's. It's an interesting question in that it's almost self-evident in the answer. Yeah. But then I would like to see numbers that show that there's a shortage of data engineering skills. I think anecdotally, we both see this um, just for the simple fact that um, people ask us, oh, how do I become a data engineer or how do I hire a data engineer? Um, but but yeah, but, you know, but again, the people uh, that we know, I mean, I know a lot of talented technologists who aren't data engineers, who I think could be great data engineers if they wanted to be. On the flip side, I know a lot of um, people who I'd say who have skill, but have no talent. Um, and this is sort of the, re the reverse tautology. Um, so uh, and I'm, sure, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, though. Is, but unpack the word talent for a bit. Like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. <clears throat> so for me... Um... It's hard to, so, so problem solving skills, right? People can develop problem solving skills, but there, I don't know, there's a certain level of talent maybe required to develop that skill. Um, some jobs, even in tech are very, very rote and people have a hard time transitioning from like a rote job to a problem solving type job where they have to learn new things and improvise. I, I don't know. That's kind of how I interpret it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we're uh, maybe we're bike shedding this one here. Perhaps, um, yeah. <laughs> perhaps yeah. But, but yeah, I, I think the answer is pretty self-evident. There, there, yeah. there very likely is a shortage of data engineering skills mm -hmm. um, that could be applied to talented people. Um, there are probably people out there with data engineering skills who just aren't talented. Um, and I, I think an example of that is, is somebody just what you pointed out, or maybe you, you've you've sort of just done the bare minimum to get by in your job. You're not doing anything that innovative or interesting. Like you just happen to have a set of skills. Um, you know, and that's kind of the farthest you'll go in your career, kind of like what the Peter principle indicates, right? Where like every, everyone, including you and me eventually reaches like the highest level of incompetence in their position. And that's just, yeah. that's a, that's a general rule. Like everybody watching this, this will happen to you. Uh, it seems to be a universal uh, law where no matter, um, how talented you think you are, how skilled at some point, uh, you're going to reach, um, that asymptote, uh, upon beyond which you can't, um, travel any further. So uh, sometimes so that means it's time to do something new, right? Yep. Like, yeah. Shift to a different area where maybe, because sometimes it's not talent so much. Sometimes it's a problem of interest and engagement. Mm -hmm. People do burn out on their jobs and then no matter, you know, how smart or talented they are, they're not going to be developing new skills or really doing a good job of what they do. Yep. Happens a lot. Technology, especially, I think this is a, uh, and let's talk about retention for a bit. Cause I think this sort of ties into retention. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, technology is definitely, it's a meat grinder. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no other way to put it. Like you either, it was Stuart Brand had this uh, saying, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, about the steamroller of technology, where if you're, if you're not in the steamroller, you're getting crushed by the steamroller. And yeah. staying in the steamroller means you're, you're staying ahead of, um, you know, sort of the current paradigms, like you're continuing to improve your, your skills, for example, right? Um, and you're continuing to evolve your career. If you don't, you get smushed by the steamroller and it just mercilessly keeps moving on. 
and that's kind of how it is. And this is exhausting to some people, honestly. Yeah. Um, like you either the kind of person who I think um, is masochistic and, and somehow likes this sort of, uh, you know, staying ahead of the steamroller yeah. game for a number of years. And I think those people do wonderfully in this type of a field. If you aren't, um, it's going to be hard to retain you. Right. And so, uh, so I, I would say for hiring managers too, like, you know, managing burnout and balancing that against the ever evolving need to stay ahead of stuff. It's a constant, um, it's a big challenge with, with tech, uh, technology managers and teams. Like, it really is. Yeah. yeah. And there's a whole leadership problem here too. Um, I think there are opportunities where leadership can make a difference. And especially in the transition to new technologies, we find people will get very, very resistant to learning something new. But with the right mm -hmm. leadership, they'll, they'll see, oh, this is good for my career. This is exciting. They'll actually be ready to take that next step. Um, another frequent problem as people are like transitioning from one, say, database environment to another, say, from something on-prem to a cloud-based database, is just frustration. And so if right. you throw people into a situation where, where like, yeah, they're trying, but they just get frustrated and they can't find any help, then they'll, they'll hate whatever new technology you're bringing in if it's stuff like a redshift or whatever, they're just going to absolutely hate it because it's just frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So, I tend to agree. Like it, it's, um, it, and, and I think it's, it's incumbent upon managers these days to retain the talent you have because your chance of finding the replacement yeah. is uh, it won't be easy. It won't be easy. And, and despite yeah. what DICE says in their job report where, you know, data engineering isn't as bad as other fields. Well, I, I'm going to say it's still pretty bad. I mean, like I said, if we have friends from FANG companies hitting us up, uh, for recruiting questions that, that kind of leads you to think that, um, you know, there's a bit of a gap right now and retention's key because it's going to be cheaper for you to retain your employees and it is to find new ones and get them retrained, uh, and, and hoping to, you know, that they don't leave in the meantime, you know, while they're training, it's uh, it's a tough one. So maybe some, you know, some, some other things, uh, retaining, right. So again, I think one theme of this uh, discussion is people don't leave their jobs. They, they do leave their managers and they do leave their team. So, especially in the, in the age of remote work, make sure that you're, you're balancing, um, you know, I guess just the realities of this new world that we live in and we have lived in for the last year and a half. It's actually not that new. We've, we've been doing remote for a while now. So perks like the snack bar that you'd always see at startups, yep. for example, unlimited kombucha, all this other stuff, right? It doesn't matter because nobody's going to the office uh, and eating snacks and drinking kombucha on tap anymore. Like this isn't, this is not what it was. So what, what does matter though, or the interactions with the team, as well as, um, you know, just a general sense of happiness about, uh, you know, the type of work that they're doing. Cause I think if COVID did anything too, it also exposed like, is what I'm doing even meaningful? That's to right. Me? So people are going to reassess everything. It's like, Oh, yeah. do I want to be in the, do I even want to be in the tech industry? I mean, I've heard that a lot as well. <laughs> people are just questioning their entire career track to, is there something else in my life that's going to be more meaningful, mm -hmm. even if it pays less money? And so just throwing more money at people without making the job itself better is probably not that compelling. Oh, man, the number of people that I know who, who, have, lost, who have left high paying tech jobs to go do something else, like be a volunteer somewhere, you know, um, be a gardener, that kind of stuff. I mean, this happens. Go teach. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, teach. It's, it's just like, you know, because depending where you work and depending, you know, and this is for hiring managers, depending upon the environment that you create and the culture that you, you have um, like this is really, you know, the matter between somebody deciding, you know, whether they're going to continue in tech or whether they're going to just exit the field and do something else entirely. And like, this is a pretty big deal, actually. They call it the great, what is it? The great migration or the, what, what was it called? Uh, there's some article that came out a, a few months yeah. ago where it talked about sort of this, this big shift going on in jobs in general, where people are just tired of it. Um, you know, kind of doing something, just finding more meaningful work. So I would say like for a manager, like figure out the mission. This is also is for CEOs and everybody else. Like what is the mission of your company? Like why, why do people want to come work for you and, and uh, put in the time when there's frankly other things you could be doing. So. Yeah. Another thing we, we talked about this just briefly at the beginning of the discussion today, but there's the ops. So there's the steamroller that you talked about. And there's also the ops aspect of tech and the ops mm -hmm. aspect is really, really hard. And there are a lot of tech jobs now with, you know, the advent of microservices and other things. You have these ops burdens kind of spreading out to more teams. 
which means that more and more people have to deal with these operational aspects. And again, operations means, you know, keeping things running. And that means that you can, you might be on call sometimes. That means you might get paged in the middle of the night or on holiday. And that's very, very frustrating for people. And so I think anything you can do to reduce that kind of burden is also going to help people to be happier. Mm-hmm. Like people in the middle of being stuck at home still don't want to, they want to be able to spend time with their families. They don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night and they don't want to be interrupted on their days. off. Like, and that's where I think investing in automation is key yeah. too. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, thankfully a lot of technology had come onto the scene that kind of pulled forward, you know, five to 10 years of, of progress. And I'd say there's, there's just things you can do to automate a lot of the on-call stuff these days. I mean, on-call is still a reality, but um, making it an expectation, uh, you know, kind of a, out of the gate, I would say like find ways to automate too, which automation can bring happiness as well. Uh, but um, I know for us, as we've been building out the team at Ternary, like mm-hmm. the thing we've been focusing on really is it's the culture of the company yep. really. And, and yep. like, that's primarily what we're trying to do is create a, a workplace where people want to work with us, you know, mm-hmm. and, and want to be really happy. Um, you know, we've had, you know, I think great success with this so far, hopefully we continue, but yeah. you can't take your eye off the ball at like culture and, uh, you know, and all the stuff that I think people took for granted before, like that's huge, huge. Uh, you know, and Russell, what's up, Russell? Um, he asks, uh, perhaps are also um, atop the, uh, when we're talking about the steamroller technology, um, perhaps some are also atop the front roller of the, of the uh, steamroller, like the uh, log roll balance challenge. Yeah, it's totally a great mental picture of this. Uh, um, kind of morbid, uh, depending on what happens to them, but uh, yeah, it's, it's very accurate. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. This, this struggle is real, right? And so, struggle is real. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I, I know people at Google who sometimes were working, you know, 80, 90 hours a week, like absolutely insane hours. And I think people have been cynical about like the the perks, like you were saying, like the gourmet chefs and yeah. site yoga and all these other things. They've been cynical about that for a long, long time because they knew that that was a ploy to like keep them chained to their desks at work. Well, the thing I would always, my, my big red flag was if I'd walk into an office and I would see a ping pong table, <laughs> right? Cause I mean, that that's, that's normally a company that's trying to play startup. Um, and by that, I mean, you, you're, you're trying to like basically cargo cult a lot of the culture that right. supposedly attracts talent. You know, a lot of this is adopted from bigger tech companies. Right, right. But yeah, the ping pong table is like by far my biggest red flag. If I saw that, then I knew the company, um, maybe they had a great culture, but for the most part, I, I think it was. Uh, the other thing is, if you see a company using the word family a lot, um, either it's actually like a family or it's like you just joined a cult. Um, so, but you, you be aware of these. Um, I'm saying this to, you know, job seekers as well as managers, like, you know, be careful the language you use. There's a, again, I think there's a lot of cargo culting of um, culture and practices to, to retain employees and make a, a fun workplace while you're working people to death at, at 80 hours a week. Right. Um, like focus on like the kind of things that employees do care about, like seeing their families, but also doing a good job. Um, so it's not just about ping pong tables. And thankfully, you know, I, I can't think of any people who are playing those these days unless you're going to an office. Um, but, but yeah, I just noticed this, you know, throughout the, the 2010s where, you know, startup culture was a, a cool thing and everyone wanted to make the cool startup culture. But for the most part, it was just basically just a facsimile of, of another company's culture where they weren't even bought into it to begin with. So, yeah. Going back to the word family, I mean, people have their own families. They don't necessarily mm-hmm. want their work family to be their family. Granted, you want to have good friendships and things, but you don't want that to be taking up your entire life. And I, I think- this said, though, I, I did read a book recently. I think it was The Culture Code, and it did talk about you know how to build strong cultures. And the one thing, the word family did come up as yeah. something where it fa- a sense of family mm-hmm. was one of the bigger contributors to a strong uh, workplace culture. Right. But this is a, this is something where. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, if you have to call out that you're a family, I think that that's where you kind of get. Um, I see. Yeah, yeah, know, if, if people feel like they're a part of something, yeah. you know, and they give it 100 percent, even though they don't have to like that, I think is when you know you have a family and people are, you know, got each other's backs. Um, you know, and that's what this book was talking about, where it's almost implicit. I think he was using the. Uh, um, the Spurs, the basketball team is, is sort of the example of this where the coach really fostered a sense of family, but he, you know, but it, it wasn't like one of those things where you chef a shout out, like we're a family, um, you know, and you need to have fun and be, you know, if you have to shout those things out, you have exactly the opposite of what you're trying to shout out probably. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, 
I think that's accurate. Yeah, yeah. If if people are protesting too too much about how good their culture is, then it might not be. Yeah, good. yeah. Um, Marin, I, 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 yeah. sense of family is a good result of a yeah. uh, good work culture, not the goal of. Um, work. Yeah, completely agree with this. Yep. This yep. is so true. Um, uh, Guy Thompson, coding rockstar, ninja Jedi. Again, yeah. If you have to cargo cult a lot of these terms, like yeah. come back. Understand what you're doing. I mean, you know, this yeah. is one of those things where I think it just helps, you know, one-on-ones, I think for, uh, you know, if we're talking about retention again, number one thing you could be doing as a manager is just talk to your people, see how they're doing. Um, one-on-ones, if you haven't learned how to do a one-on-one, there are great resources out there. I still think the best resources I've seen have been uh, the manager tools series. Uh, it's back from like yeah, the 2000s. Yeah. And these guys are a bit stuffy and I think a bit corporate, but their the practices around one-on-ones I think are still unbeatable. And ask so. the manager. I don't know if you've looked at that site. That's mm -hmm. really good. Yeah, it's just like people, you know, anonymously ask questions about like, oh, I had this problem as a manager at work. Like, how would how would you deal with this? And it's pretty frank feedback about what you might be doing wrong as a manager to screw things up, which is a really good lesson for interesting all of us who have people report to us. So. Well, and I always use the the Michael Scott um, uh, test too. So if if you've, if you've ever watched The Office, my whole litmus test is. Um, uh, you know, Michael Scott, he's, he's intentionally a buffoon right. of a character, right? And, and it's he's, he's there to highlight uh, basically just, I would say if Michael Scott does something, try and do the opposite of it. Right. Um, and that tends to be my litmus test. It's a Michael Scott test. I came up with it. Or maybe other people have too. But it's just an observation of human behavior, really. But as a manager, um, you know, just whatever he does, do the opposite. Say with David Brent, the British version of the character. Um but um, kind of actually going back to the job exodus real quick, I forgot to ask this because uh, um, Marin uh, asked the, uh, um, you know, he says the job exodus uh, on the topic of, attri of attrition. Recently, I've seen many complaints that seniors are leaving, but the job market only hired seniors over the last years, demanding five plus years of experience. Uh, what will uh, we be calling people next? Interesting. Yeah. So is there a terminology issue here? It's that whole, like, <laughs> is that a classic example of, of back in like 2000 or something? They, they, there were job postings about people with 10 years of Java experience when Java hadn't been around. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it seems like there is a lot of, there are a lot of games played around the senior title, um, especially in data engineering. It's like, I want people with a lot of data engineering intuition who've used a lot of different tools over time. But a lot of the tools that companies are adopting now, like they've been around for a while, but they haven't been popular for that long, right? Like where, mm -hmm. where are you going to find a, a senior Snowflake engineer with 10 years of experience? I mean, they do exist, but they're very rare and very, very expensive because Snowflake has been around for a while. It hasn't been popular for, for nearly that long. Uh, he votes for super senior <laughs> as the, uh, yeah, I think it's a good one. But yeah, the, the, so I mean, you, you see this a lot too. Um, it, it's something I, I hear about a lot in data science hiring, for example, right? Where, um, I mean, right, you know, whereas in the uh, mid 2010s, there, you know, there weren't, that, there weren't that many data scientists as a title just because it was fairly new. Um, now all of a sudden you fast forward six years, whatever. Um, there's a lot of, of junior data scientists. I, I would say that's a glut and you hear this a lot. Um, but companies only want to hire senior talent. I think this is sort of a general rule, though, where, yeah. I mean, if, if you want to hire somebody, you know, you're going to want to try and find the most senior person possible. The problem is there's, like, not a lot of these people. And so I think back to the question, what will, what will we be calling people next? I, I just think um, we'll be calling them really expensive is what you're going to be calling them. Because, like, if you're trying to hire, hire only senior talent and they've left, um, uh, well, they're probably not going to go back to the jobs they were just at they might be looking for something new and therefore they're going to get more expensive uh, just because of the sheer supply. Of course, this doesn't take into account the, the new seniors that will come on the scene and the super seniors, as, as he puts it, that'll um, have graduated to, uh, you know, the super senior role. But yeah, um, yeah loop, it's a tricky one. Does this loop back to the question of just investing more in junior talent in hiring people and training them or training internally, hiring internally, these kinds of things? Um. Yeah, I think you're going to see more of a trend for that just because of yeah. sheer necessity. I mean, what is it? The last stat I saw, it was like, you know, the the U.S., I think it was the U.S., I don't know. Uh, it was like short, like a half million uh, data practitioners for certain data jobs, mainly data science and stuff, which it could be lumped into a bunch of other roles. But the point being, half million gaps, a half million gap, right? I don't care how you slice it. 
you got just going to magically invent that many people. I know at, at our, you know, at, at the school we teach at University of Utah. Yeah. Um, I mean, how many people did they get into the MSIS program? I think it was like in, on the order of like in the hundreds. So, um, and that's just to, to make, you know, MSIS or MSBA grads, right? And I, I don't know what the data science uh, department there has, but it's probably similar ish. So you're talking a number of tens to maybe a couple hundred per school per year. And so, yeah, the, the question is very natural. Well, okay, so I have a, a, this many to fill and you guys can give me, um, well, this crumb here, this like atom out of like this many. And so how many more do I need? Where are you gonna yeah. get that? Yeah, yeah. I think so. creativity is in order, right? <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. one thing we've seen at tech companies is that um, tech companies used to be known for like this very flexible Wild West culture. Like if you have talent, we'll let you do all kinds of interesting things. We'll let you shift jobs. We'll let you shift roles. And I won't say which tech company this happened at, but one of our friends like got passed over for a promotion because supposedly she did not have relevant experience, even though all the experience on her resume was relevant, but it wasn't the right job titles that they were looking for. They were looking for very specific job titles. It's like, oh no, you didn't have this job title and this job title, therefore you can't have this new role. And she's like, well, I've been doing basically this job for the last five years. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one way for an enterprise or tech company to shoot itself in the foot is to become so rigid in its thinking in HR that there's no recognition of the opportunity to use the talent you have mm -hmm. or to use someone in a creative way where they can make a big contribution. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I would say a lot of these fangs right now, you know, and a lot of the um, big companies are fangs. I mean, they're having trouble keeping people for precisely this reason. Uh, again, it's the old saying that we talked about. People, you know, don't leave their job. They leave their manager. And if, yeah. if you're not given the opportunity to, to move up, I was reading it, you know, a stat the other day where it, it's like if you, you know, if you hadn't basically for internal candidates, yeah. right? If, if, if you're an internal candidate and you don't get the position, you're very likely just to leave. And do something mm -hmm. else because at what point do you want to stick around it's like okay um i've already tried to get a job uh within my company i paid my dues and i can't so maybe there's someone else and again the you know other stats i've read were um you know the the best way to get pay increases and get more opportunity is to leave your company um go somewhere else so right and i i've heard that at tech companies it's like well okay i'm below band for this job like what do you guys want to do? And they're like, oh, we'll just go get another offer and then you can have a pay raise. Like, yeah, but if someone gets another offer, they've got one foot out the door. Like all they have to do is sign and they're gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's a very short-sighted retention practice. Especially right now when hiring is is like, you know, insanely brutal. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing I would say too is, you know, Glassdoor, uh, that, that's another uh, monkey wrench has been thrown into this because, yeah. Back in the day, you know, you'd have to rely on anecdotes. Now you can just rely on, um, you know, sort of uh, people getting pissed or, or extremely happy, or they just have their uh, recruiters write a bunch of high praise on the on their Glassdoor ratings. But um, you know, and I, I would take Glassdoor with a, a grain of salt in the sense where people who leave negative reviews tend to have an axe to grind. Um, that said, if you keep seeing the same things over and over in the Glassdoor reviews, if you're a hiring manager or if you're a hiring manager and you see this at your company, maybe about your team, it might be time to look in the mirror and, and maybe do a personal assessment of how you could improve things. Um, if you're a candidate looking at, for roles and you see consistently the same sorts of Glassdoor reviews, um, that might be an indication that that's what you're walking into. Yeah. And in general, like, yes, the people with an extra grind are going to be oversampled, but that's going to be true for any company. And so yep. in general, Glassdoor is still a valid tool for comparison between companies, maybe the exception being an extremely small company where the data sample size is small. One really negative review can really skew the results. But for big companies, like probably gives you a pretty clear picture of what you might be walking into. Yeah, so. yeah, totally. Um, I'll, uh, I'll add this at the end. Oh, we have another question. Well, yeah, I mean, what, yeah, you can read it. This, this is what I was actually going to address. And I don't know if algorithms are the problem or, or some other technique, but I think in general, recruiting is really an unsolved problem. And maybe that's, that's more what we've seen even, that there's a, even than this idea that there's a specific shortage in data engineering. I, I think what we've seen working with a lot of different companies is that recruiting is very, very hard. It's hard to find talent that's really going to function well in your company. It's hard to find people who learn the specific skills that you need them to have. Um, there's a data shortage, I would say, as well. Like, I like this DICE data. At the same time, when I look at it, I can see maybe where there need, we would like to have more 
specifics on cloud skills, for example, on specific mm -hmm. types of technology that are not here. So yeah, in terms well, of startup it's, ideas, it's hard to find good recruiters yeah. too. Yep, That's I mean great. the number of a number of terrible recruiters I see. I mean, I just need to open up my LinkedIn messages and I see yeah. messages from people asking for me if I want to become an Android developer at a company or if I you know uh, want to be a front end uh, UI developer with React. I'm like, yeah. I've never indicated and in, you know on my LinkedIn or my resume that I have any of those skills. I may have written React in my spare time, but that right. is not make me qualified for a job in that area. And so, um, but you see this a lot. There's, there's, I would say part of it too is, um, I'd be curious to know, like, again, there's a lot of job postings, yeah. um, again, and how many of these go unfilled? And I'm and then diving deeper into that question, how many of these, uh, how much of this has to do with just kind of crappy recruiters to begin with? Um, I mean, maybe that industry needs to shake up too. So, yeah. you know, but, but I had some friends who have worked at, you know, um, I'm not going to name names of companies, but, uh, you know, kind of sort of AI enabled um, interview companies and stuff of video interviews and stuff. And, I, you know, I, I think that there's uh, there's a lot of potential with these technologies. At the same time, it still feels like it's really early days. And in terms of resume sifting, um, the only danger I see with that is you, you might, um, you know, you might miss some hidden gems in the mix. I would say the types of people that I've successfully recruited weren't the most obvious candidates, right? Um, I still remember like one of the, one of the uh, smartest, uh, best programs that I'd hired was a, some, a teenager actually, uh, who had sent me a resume. He didn't finish college. He, he walked into the office uh, unannounced, you know, wearing like a nose ring and combat boots. And he's like, hey, I just wanna say hi. And I'm like, why are you here? Um, and I was like, well, okay, he's got gumption. Let's, I'll take a few minutes out and, you know, do a quick whiteboard with him and, um, ended up hiring him. He was actually probably a better engineer than a lot of this quote, senior engineers that we had on the team. This kid had also been, uh, you know, coding since I think he was like under 10. So he may have been actually been programming longer, but the whole point is you just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, in fact, everyone is looking for that kind of diamond in the rough, right? In other words, someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience but can learn very, very quickly and is creative and can make contributions that maybe you weren't even looking for, but is still capable of working with the team and getting along with people and not blowing things up. Like, yeah, that helps. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, part of this though is I think it's it does come down to you know I hate the I hate the term cultural fix. I think yeah. that that tends to sort of bias your, your hiring decisions based upon, well, is this person like one of us? Right. You know, yeah. but at the same time, it, it really does come down to some sort of like, you know, we, we mentioned the word family before, and I think it's kind of, um, I think Guy Thompson actually, he, he wrote a, a comment here. I, I'm not sure I agree with family so much as I, I, I do like having a solid team. Like, I think what you got to assess for, and this is always the, the crapshoot with hiring, right? Um, where can this person function on our team? Yeah. Well, yeah. even if they're not a cultural fit, in some cases, I would say you don't want somebody to be a cultural fit because you get too much um, homogeneity in the picture. Group thing. And you get too right? Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I want contrarians. I want people who think different, who are going to call us out. Like, that's how actually I think you have a better team. If you have a bunch of yes men on your team and yes, yes women, it's like, what's the point? You may as well just, I don't know, find a way to algorithmically like clone those people or something. So, and I think even in recruiting, this is a big problem where say you are, you do have a Java dev team and you're constantly, you're like, oh, let's go find all these people who have 10 years of Java experience. Well, there, there tends to be kind of a profile that goes with 10 years of Java experience. It's not universal, but it tends to be like very enterprisey software devs, frankly. And you might be better off pulling in a, a Python developer and training them in Java just to kind of have some fresh blood in the mix, like to mix things up a bit. <laughs> like, yeah, it's going to take a while to train them up, but you actually might end up with a better outcome in the end. The other you thing might. I'm going to say about this family comment is that we're kind of, I think enterprises and you know tech companies have sort of co-opted this idea of family and really like people have their own families that they want to spend time with. So I do like the yep. idea of just calling it team. Like let's stop pretending that we're going to be your family and let's be your team instead and let you have your own life outside of work. Yeah. The yeah appropriation exactly. of, of people's lives. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think it's just asking a ton, right? Yeah. Like I, I think we do a pretty good job at this, even with the small team we have where, um, you know, we, we actively encourage people like go do stuff outside of work, please. Like we, if you're around us too much, uh, on one hand, that's very flattering. On the other hand, like you, 
you're probably going to get tired of us after a bit. Um, and you just need other interests and your family and your friends, they, they, you know, that's, that's, that's much of a part of your life as work should be. Um, you know, we don't have a, uh, you know, a nine, six, six culture or whatever it is in, in China where, you know, you just work everyone to death and read the other day about somebody who at a Chinese tech company who like died in the break room, uh, just cause you know, they just work themselves to death. Like that's, that's not, that's not a family. That's not a, that's, that's, that's just a horrible, um, situation really. So yeah, kind of makes me wonder like how many tech companies that they could do that, the, that they, they would do it. Whereas in China right now, I think that the, the, um, the government's actually going to put the kibosh on the, um, 996 culture or 966, whatever it is. Cause they're like, this is, this, this, this isn't working for our culture that we're trying to, uh, you know, yeah, build in I society. So. I mean, <laughs> so. yeah, it's, uh, I, I think this has gone on because you have this kind of new middle class. They're, they're coming from nothing. All of a sudden mm -hmm. they have this opportunity to make a lot of money. And so it was easy to work people to death. And I wonder, even in the United States, you know, we don't, we haven't had exactly that work culture, but I think we did see that type of work culture emerge in the tech industry for a while. Mm -hmm. And maybe with COVID and with people reassessing life priorities, we're kind of shifting away from a lot of that now. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's generally a good thing, yeah. right? I mean, it's, um, it, it's a balance like anything. And so, you know, to kind of bring it back, um, you know, hiring and retaining data engineers, I don't think it's, a, I, don't, I think we can agree it's not a problem really unique to data engineering. Okay. Uh, we kind of started this talk off by, by wondering, okay, are we, because we get hit up by a lot of people asking yeah. us if we know data engineers, um, who are looking for work, if, if maybe this is a, um, particular to data engineering, I, I don't, I think we're in agreement. This is, it's not just a tech issue either. I just think right now there's it just there's a hiring shortage. Period. Like no people aren't looking for work in the same way they were before COVID. Another thing I'll say about these numbers. So I'm looking at the you know top 50 tech occupations by job posting volume. Look look at the what, stats here. I what mean, page which, is that on? Oh, this is on page 19. So it's one okay. of the main pages you were looking at. So okay, data engineering is number 29 by their ranking algorithm, but it's year over year 15 percent growth in posting like that that number is insane it only pales in comparison to other job postings that are mm -hmm. even more insane like project manager which is 19 percent. like to see that kind of growth in any industry is absolute absolutely bonkers like it was pretty so, bonkers so so it doesn't mean that like there is a lot of demand for data engineer there might be even more demand for other like technical manager other domains in the tech industry and other roles but it's all of these numbers are absolutely insane except for like front-end developer which I, I don't know the difference between that and like web developer that's showing massive growth. Where did that go? Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So it'd be interesting to kind of cherry pick yeah. the, the data here. I don't know that I have time to do it. If anyone in the audience does, um, you know, uh, yeah. I think, and again, VBA 20% year over year. Like mm -hmm. it's just crazy. Uh, let me see here. Yeah. You say nine to five work culture, but you're always broadcasting in the evening from a European perspective. Well, it's our morning here. So I will say you're the one watching it in the evening too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so touche. Um, anyway, uh, nice dig there. Um, cool. So anyway, it's Labor Day. Um, and ironically, we're talking about uh, not working on a, on a holiday. But um, like I said, we have a lot of audience that doesn't reside in the U.S. And um yeah. So yeah, this was fun. I mean, this was even by the standards of our usual chats. This one was a lot of fun. So mm -hmm. yeah, and thanks to the audience again for the uh, you know fun comments and questions and and whatnot. Um, you know, if you're if you're watching on um, YouTube or even if you aren't, please subscribe yeah. to our channel there. Um, smash the like button on the video um, for people watching on LinkedIn. Uh, awesome. Thanks for. Um, I'm surprised people are on LinkedIn. And this is actually one of the tests we want to do is are, would people watch our show on, on a, uh, you know, on, on Labor Day here? And I'm not sure how many uh, people from the U.S. are watching, but um, I, I, we do find it amusing. And um, I, so I assume you get LinkedIn notifications on your phone, right? Yeah. OK. And then I was getting them on my watch for a while. I'm like, this is super annoying. <laughs> I turn them off. Like, uh -huh. Yeah, but that, that's the thing. Like, I'm sure people are getting hit up by their phones and their watches by LinkedIn. And some of them, yeah. Hopefully that mm -hmm. was valuable if, if you got something out of this talk. But uh, at the same time, go do something cool today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can say even if it's your uh, your evening, say you're in uh, Europe, for example, um, yeah, go uh, go for a walk or have some fun. I know, you know, today I, I know I'm going to be working on our 
book and uh, probably going to go um, uh, climbing later. So, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an insane time for us. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Where you, you look at things, you're like, oh, I have time to just work on the book, which will be so relaxing compared to all the other stuff that I'm doing. On other uh -huh. Yeah, Someday it'll get better. I think that's just the nature of running a small business. Yeah, I would say if you if you don't want to have any time for anything, like definitely start a business um, like yeah, it, it, it's much easier just to go have a job. Um, like like one of my old bosses said, you know, who was a CEO of a company, he said, yeah, my idea of a vacation is a 60 hour a week. And I didn't realize what he meant until I uh, started running the business. And I'm like, yeah, he's right. He's so right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would say for anyone who is out there and has a job and doesn't run a business, um, have a nice day. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And please, get, please get the hell off of a LinkedIn video and go do something fun with your yeah, day. Yeah. So, Take care of your work-life balance, uh, recharge, decompress, whatever you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, next Monday, uh, I know we've been talking about talking about the uh, undercurrents of data engineering, yeah. but I think that'll be the topic for next week. We wanted to maybe keep it kind of focused on uh, work uh, since it is Labor Day in the U.S., but we'll um, uh, get back on track with uh, some data engineering talk. So, yeah. Cool, man. All right, Matt. Well, we'll uh, have a nice Labor Day. <laughs> All right. Sounds it's good. mainly a joke. Yeah. I'll, right. I'll see you online, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That's true. All right. Have a good one. All right. Take care. Bye.